This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. In the ancient Christian world, there was always some concern about being right with God. The second century fathers discussed it even though there doesn't seem to have been a lot of controversy over the doctrine of justification. One of the earliest post-apostolic documents, First Clement, takes it for granted that we are justified through faith. And if we did not know better, chapter 5 of the Epistle to Diognetus from the middle of the second century might be mistaken for a Lutheran or Reformed tract from the 16th century when it talks about the joyous exchange. They were driven to such language by Scripture, which is replete with talk about being right with God by grace alone through faith alone. The medieval church came to think, however, of justification as a process, the outcome of grace and cooperation with grace. The Reformation reasserted the biblical and ancient Christian doctrine of justification by divine favor alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. For all the disagreements in the pre-modern world over how we are justified and who are justified, does God justify sinners or does he vindicate the godly, there was general agreement that God is just and that we need to be right with him. In our world, however, in a world where identities bear no relationship to objective reality or biological realities, where the world is said to start with a floor and end with a ceiling, in a world where this life is all there is, what does it mean to talk about justification? Justified to whom? Why? Who cares? Why are we asking? Were we to ask the average late modern Westerner today to justify himself, he's most likely to say, I don't have to justify myself to anyone, least of all you. The late modern tends to think that it is God who must justify himself to us. Mike Horton has been engaging the doctrine of justification for most of four decades. Indeed, if you're Reformed, if you believe in justification by grace alone through faith alone, if you think you ought to distinguish the law from the gospel, then there's a significant likelihood that you learn to think that way from Mike Horton. He is J. Gresson Machen, professor of systematic theology and apologetics at Westminster Seminary, California, where he has taught since 1998. He's just published a major two-volume work on the doctrine of justification, the title of which is Justification, and the series is New Studies in Dogmatics, published by Zondervan, and it's just out. It's available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Mike, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. You impute too much credit to me to use the categories that we're talking about here. Well— But thank you. People have been listening to the White Horse Inn and reading Horton for a very long time. And uh, you and R.C. and— Rod Rosenblatt Rod, and yeah. Kim Riddlebarger. Yeah. Sure. It's so a, you're in a group of people and Bob Godfrey. Bob Godfrey. Good Still company. with us? A, yes. a, 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 <laughs> That's right. I almost said a blessed memory. Of noted but, <laughs> fame. <laughs> yeah. have been uh, standing up for and explaining and talking about the Protestant doctrine of justification. The biblical doctrine, as far as we know, at least in the earliest Christian church, the ancient Christian doctrine of justification. So, with all that, don't we already know what we think about the doctrine of justification and why these two volumes, both of which are substantial, which I guess add up to probably more than 600 pages? I haven't counted, but yeah, the first volume is more historical and tries to explain how we got from the ancient church position, which is varied. get more complicated in the third and fourth centuries, perhaps. Yeah, they're focusing on the Trinity and the deity of Christ. And really, we even have different rivers that flow through the ancient church. One that I pick up on, and these are 
you know, types are always generalized, but an Irenaean trajectory from Irenaeus, the second century church father, which focuses on the history of redemption and, interestingly, covenant theology. And he distinguishes very clearly between the law and the gospel. Then you have the Origenist stream from Origen, the great church father, are not so great, 50 years after Irenaeus. And they really do constitute, I think, two different approaches to a lot of these questions. One tends to be more grounded in the history of salvation, and uh, one tends to be more grounded in sort of categories of being. Is that fair? Yeah, it's fair. In fact, one way to look at it is for Irenaeus, like the Bible, the focus is horizontal. God's promises in history and their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Whereas for Origen, following the Neoplatonist, even Gnostic milieu of third century Alexandria, has a more vertical metaphysics. His outlook is much more like the pagan Neoplatonists of exit and return. Everything is emanating, flowing like a fountain from God and returning to God. And in that way of thinking, we fell into bodies by our demerits before God created this world. It's a kind of weird, very Gnostic kind of system. And we merited different bodies. And if we participate in and strive toward the return away from matter, away from our bodies and their senses, toward heaven— toward God and the divine beings, then we can win back our wings. Well, that's a very meritorious kind of, yeah, good luck with that one. And not something that is readily suggested by Scripture. Yeah, right. All over the Scriptures, you find that kind of of thing. (laughs) I mean, Origen was nothing if not creative. I mean, he he was widely regarded as one of the most brilliant minds in the ancient church. Absolutely. But as a catechism teacher, I've often puzzled about that. He was a catechism teacher in Alexandria. I've imagined children coming home from catechism class with uh, Pastor Origen. Daddy, I have no idea what he just <laughs> what, said. What are you talking about? What, what's he talking about? But actually, I think Origen wasn't that creative. I think he was basically borrowing. borrowing on what was in the air in Alexandria. Neoplatonism, which fed Christians like himself and before him Clement of Alexandria, and the pagan Neoplatonists and Gnostics and Hermeticists. So there's a whole worldview there that Origen just kind of fell back on. Irenaeus is, you know, his mentor was Polycarp, whose mentor was the Apostle John. So there's a much closer biblical atmosphere for Irenaeus. What is interesting, though, Scott, is Origen, I read through his commentary on Romans really carefully, he is a good exegete. And when he hits a passage, like the ones that don't play very well in his theology, he explains it according to the normal sense. But then he allegorizes or moralizes in his argument— And basically, what he gives with the left hand, he takes with the right. But what I think is really fascinating about that, and I make quite a lot of it in the book, is that he acknowledges that the Apostle Paul especially is teaching very clearly original sin and that the only way we can be justified is by the righteousness of Christ being given to us. Now, what he goes on to say as a theologian, not an exegete, is terrible. But the very fact that he recognizes and has to somehow explain away the passage as he sees it right there in front of him, I think is a demonstration that the doctrine the Reformers recovered is the biblical doctrine. It's what Scripture teaches. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California.
We're talking with Mike Horton about his major new work, two-volume work, on justification, which is available through the bookstore here at wscal.edu slash bookstore and lots of places online and maybe even an actual brick-and-mortar bookstores. If they still exist. (laughs) Who knows? Yeah, (laughs) you can go out and uh, do a a hunt and see if you can find one somewhere. So in the first volume, you do a survey of the history of the doctrine, and in some ways, the story is not very good for a long time. So you have these two trajectories, Irenaeus and origin, and through the course of the medieval church, both in the West, the Latin West, and in the Greek-speaking East, the Byzantine church, the trajectories are sort of away from what Scripture seems to say and what the earliest fathers seem to say. That's true, but there are some really notable exceptions, and I quote them. There are a lot of quotes here. You mentioned 6th century Eastern writer and a 7th century Eastern writer saying some very interesting things. Yeah, Chrysostom is one of my favorites. You know, before doing this work, I scratched my head whenever I came across Calvin saying that Chrysostom was his favorite biblical preacher and exegete. How on earth? Well, he paid attention to Scripture, though, right? Isn't well, that see, the... that's the thing. I thought, because all I had read of Chrysostom were bits and bobs where, you know, he moralized and so forth. Actually, going back and reading Chrysostom on a whole host of passages, I fell in love with him. I thought, this guy really got it. And here's what's interesting, Scott. You know, we often think that the Reformers recovered Augustine's doctrine. Well, Augustine actually is a mixed bag, as you know. He not only gave us sola gratia, you know, not gave us, but really emphasized by grace alone, against Pelagius, but he also gave the Western world this idea that we are justified by love. So he gave us, you know, some of the bad stuff of the Middle Ages, as well as some of the good stuff. Chrysostom interestingly, doesn't believe in unconditional election. Augustine does, but Chrysostom does not. And I think there are reasons for that in the culture. But anyway, he doesn't believe in unconditional election. He highlights the role of free will. And then he turns around and on these passages, when he's preaching them, says that even our will to believe is a gift of God. And he says that justification happens all at once. It's not a process. It happens all at once when a person believes in Jesus Christ. And he emphasizes that this is by the gospel, not by the law. You read Chrysostom and you think that you're reading Luther or Calvin. Really? I mean, on the relevant passages, it's really striking. And then there are others who also say similar things. My concern in that first volume is not to shoehorn people into, you know, anachronistically reading the church fathers as if they're saying things that they're not. They're all Luther and Calvin. No, 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 no. But many of them said things that have components that taken together are the ingredients of the Reformation doctrine. And in some cases, like Chrysostom, you have all of the ingredients there in one mix. So that's really important that you use the metaphor of shoehorning. That's important. So you're letting the past be the past, but also seeing where the stuff that became the Reformation came from, which is another way of saying, as I always try to say to the students, that the Reformation or any major development, nothing just falls out of the sky, de novo, right? I mean, after creation, everything is made up of other things that already exist. And so the Reformers were reading the Fathers, and they were learning from the Fathers, and they were in large measure reading the fathers in response to what they had inherited from the Latin West. And they were dissatisfied with it, and they went back and looked at Scripture and let the early church help them understand some things. Absolutely. In fact, you have, at the time of the Reformation, one of the things that the humanists who embraced the Reformation shared in common was 
a renewed interest in the church fathers. And interestingly, many of them in Italy who became Reformed and came to Geneva or Strasbourg or Zurich or elsewhere, they fled the Inquisition. They set up in Lucca a very prestigious theological college, and everyone was fascinated with the church fathers, especially the Eastern church fathers. And Chrysostom played a major role in that. Peter Martyr Vermilli is one of the key leaders there, Jerome Zanke and others. But, you know, so it was in part that recovered interest. Then also Bernard of Clairvaux, the medieval mystic he's often called, but it's an evangelical mysticism, you might say, really emphasized this idea of the great exchange, Christ's righteousness for our unrighteousness, his riches for our poverty and so forth in this marriage between the believer and Christ. And Luther says, as he's trying to explain the doctrine of justification, it's all there in Bernard. In Bernard, what do I mean? In all of the church fathers and best medieval writers, what am I saying? It's in all the scriptures. So it is typical way of exclaiming. And then Calvin, in his treatment of our union with Christ, quotes Bernard of Clairvaux almost as much as he does scripture throughout that whole section. Sixteen times he quotes Bernard of Clairvaux. He was their favorite writer, medieval writer, by by far, both for Luther and Calvin. So what the Protestants rediscovered in the 16th century wasn't entirely new. It didn't just create this out of whole cloth. So what was it, Mike, that they relearned? So the listener uh, is perhaps wondering, so what did the Protestants say? Can you summarize it for us briefly? Yeah, part of it is they recovered a clear distinction between the law and the gospel. Martin Luther said that whoever can clearly distinguish the law and the gospel, particularly in preaching, should get a doctor's cap immediately. That is so hard to do, he recognized, but so important. Calvin also learned to do that really well, and it was very important. He insisted on it. His successor, Theodore Beza, said almost all the corruptions that have ever corrupted Christianity and still corrupt Christianity today turn on a confusion of the law and the gospel. So this is really essential to the Reformation. Yeah. If you want to be a Protestant, you have to distinguish between law and gospel. If you don't do that, you're not a Protestant. So this is not a second blessing, or this is not a uniquely Lutheran insight. This is something that was shared by all the Protestants, right? Absolutely. You know, Erzinus begins his commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism by saying, this is the distinction of all distinctions. I'm going to start this whole commentary by saying, you've got to know the distinction between law and the gospel. So I think that was really critical because the medieval church referred to the gospel or referred to the time in which we're living now since Christ as the new law. And so you have the old law and the new law. It's all law. The whole Bible, they said, was law. (laughs) And the the difference between the old law and the new law is that there's somewhat more grace and fewer types and shadows, right? You have the sacraments operating ex opere operato by doing it, it is done. So because you are regenerated in baptism by grace alone, apart from any works, yes, you have more grace because you have more sacramental efficacy in the new covenant than in the old. But you're still always in the medieval scheme and in the Roman scheme under the law. Grace enables, grace gives you the opportunity, but you have to make the free choice to cooperate with that grace. And there has to be a sufficient degree and quality of cooperation in order finally to make it through this process. Yeah, I remember Dr. Godfrey telling us in class, the Roman and Protestant doctrine of justification can be contrasted very easily and simply on this point. For Rome, 
justification is the terminus ad quem, the goal, whereas in Reformation theology, justification is the terminus a quo. So it's from our justification that we move in sanctification toward glorification. It's the reverse for Rome. So you start in baptism with a slate clean, and then you cooperate with grace. That's sanctification. And as you cooperate with grace, you become more justified until finally you have enough of your own merits combined with the merits of Mary and the saints and Jesus. He's got some merits thrown in there, too, uh, (laughs) to earn final salvation, final justification. So you really are justified because you are just, whereas in the biblical conception, we are truly just, but not our own justice. Christ's justice is credited or imputed to us the very moment we believe. And we receive it through faith, which we define differently than Rome. For Rome, faith really becomes faithfulness. And for us, faith is knowledge, assent, and trust. And that last part is really important. We describe it by using words like fiducia, that heartfelt trust. And for Rome, fiducia stands for presumption or arrogance. Mm, Yeah. Who are you to think that you're one of the elect? You can't know that you're elect until you have the beatific vision. Yeah. Yeah, and it's one of the things I really focus on a lot in Volume 1 when you get to the medieval part is the trek from Thomas Aquinas to Martin Luther's teachers. And Thomas Aquinas, it's interesting, as an Augustinian, bless his heart, he himself moved, as Augustine did himself, moved from what we would call a semi-Pelagian position to an Augustinian position by saying, look, the only way merit can play any role. Merit would be a Pelagian idea without this. The only way it can play any role in our salvation is because of predestination. We're chosen by grace alone before all time, and God not only chooses the end but the means. He has predestined us to salvation, and therefore he will give us the merits. We do truly merit, but he gives us the merits. They're spirit wrought. They're spirit wrought. Now, this is his mature position that you find in his Summa Theologia, his major work. But here's the interesting thing. He says, if you take that away, if you take away unconditional election, and you base it on free will and God foreseeing what you would do with this grace, then there's no way merit cannot be conceived as a Pelagian concept. Well, what happened with Luther's mentors, it's called the nominalists, what happened with that teaching was they took away unconditional election. And therefore, just following Thomas Aquinas's account, they became Pelagians. And really, what's interesting is it was at the Council of Trent, I argue, leaning on other people, was at the Council of Trent, not that the reformers embraced nominalism, as is often charged, but that they reacted against nominalism. And Rome, in fact, embraced nominalism. That's a controversial thesis, but I think it's indisputable. You believe, but how did you come to faith? Did God elect you because he saw that you would believe? Did Christ die to make salvation available to those who do their part? Can a true believer fall away and be lost? These are just some of the questions that the Reformed churches from across Europe and the British Isles gathered to resolve at the Synod of Dort in 1618-1619. This year is the 400th anniversary of that synod, and we want you to join us on the campus of Westminster Seminary, California for our annual conference, Friday and Saturday, January 18th and 19th, 
2019. Remembering the Canons. That's January 18 and 19, 2019. The conference features talks by W. Robert Godfrey, Mike Horton, Joel Kim, Charles Telfer, and your host, R. Scott Clark. Register now by calling toll-free 888-480-8474, 888-480-8474, or online at wscal.edu, wscal.edu. Remembering the Canons in beautiful Escondido, California, January 18 and 19, 2019, on the campus of Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss out. Register now. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Well, we could spend the entire interview going through the history of the Doctrine of Justification, which is what you and I do to some degree, and it's vitally important, but there's an entire second volume where you discuss the contemporary situation, and we're talking to Mike Horton, you're listening to Office Hours, and we're talking about Mike's new book, Justification, two volumes, everything you ever wanted to know (laughs) about the doctrine of justification, about the history of the doctrine, and then in the volume two, the second volume is on the contemporary discussion. It's really a defense of the doctrine today from Scripture. But you take very seriously a whole range of writers and ideas and critiques of the traditional Protestant doctrine, and you deal with them at great length. Many of them get their own chapter, so you deal with the new perspective on Paul. You have a fascinating discussion of apocalyptic liberation, the atonement, the accomplishment of redemption and the application of redemption and biblical theology versus systematic theology. It just covers an amazing range of topics. So the listener will certainly want to get these volumes and read them for himself or herself. So where are we now? We know where the Reformation ended up, justification by grace alone, that is by divine favor, through faith alone, that is through resting, receiving, trusting in Christ alone. But as I said at the beginning, we seem to be in something of a crisis today. If you say to a late modern secular American or European, you need to be justified, you're going to get quizzical looks. I love your intro, Scott, because I think it's exactly on the mark. At least, at least a 16th century person could go into the cathedral or parish church for mass and have some sense of guilt and what do I do with my sin? Today, a lot of people walk into church without that sense at all, and they don't have that sense throughout the service because everything's focused on, you know, how you can have your best life now and how, you know. <laughs> I knew you were going to yeah, I was thinking either Paris or Houston, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. right? You walk into Paris and it's a museum. You walk into Houston and it's a self-help seminar. Uh, exactly. And so in that kind of atmosphere, in a therapeutic worldview, you don't have guilt that needs to be dealt with. You have shame, or you have bad feelings that don't have any basis in reality. They're not objective. So the goal is to make you not feel like that. And the successful service sends you out feeling good about yourself. Right. Without any objective reason for it. Never mind, am I right with God? Never mind. What we would see, I think, is the continuing problem of an all-consuming, all-holy, all-righteous God. The wrath of God is being poured out on all all the ungodly. And that's in the New Testament, right? Our God is a consuming fire. That's in the New Testament. So there continues to be a problem, and there continues to be the problem of our sin. 
Right. And not only with, you know, Houston, but in a lot of the new work, latest work on Paul, there's a movement away from his concern with how can sinners be right before a holy God, the wrath of God being the problem, a movement away from that to interpreting Paul as seeing the problem mainly as the world under the powers of evil and structural social evil, and he came to solve these problems, and now we need to be co-redeemers and reconcilers with Jesus in the world. Now, that's just one line. There are other lines. But what's fascinating is how similar, in some ways, they sound to the critics of the Protestant reformers, especially, for example, on the whole issue of whether the law that condemns us it refers, when Paul talks about law versus faith, or law versus grace, or law versus Christ, law there is ceremonies. It's circumcision and the dietary laws. Now, you're not saying that. No, that was first promulgated by Origen, and it's a way, basically, of saying, well, Paul's contrast between works and grace isn't what it seems. It's not a blanket contrast. It's some works. Not stuff we do versus stuff God has done. Right. We know a priori, right? That couldn't be the case. No, it's some stuff that we do or <laughs> yeah, is so, done to us. And, versus, and specifically the Old Testament ceremony. Yeah, circumcision and dietary laws especially. The good news is you don't have to keep kosher and you don't have to be circumcised. That's the good news. But you still have to be good in order to be just. Absolutely. And this is the debate we're having with the new perspective on Paul, right? So right. The new perspective is broader. Yes. So it isn't really all that new. That part of it isn't. I mean, there are components that are new and that we have to address. We have to take stock of. I don't think that we have always wrestled with the cosmic, apocalyptic, and other aspects of the meaning of salvation more generally. But I think that the new perspective is a dangerous overcorrection. It's not what they leave in as much as what they leave out. Although I think sometimes what they leave in is, I don't, just don't see it in the text either. But you've spent a lot of time reading Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, and engaging with him. You've co-taught courses with him. In some ways, you have been interacting with his views for probably more than a decade, at least, in print. So where are you now in your dialogue with Wright? He's been so generous with his time to go back and forth. As I was writing this, I would send a chapter and he would interact with it. And then, yes, we've at conferences, we've interacted and at a course. And you interact with him at great length. Why I ask is that you interact with his views at length, not only in volume two of this work. I'm talking with Mike Horton, you're listening to Office Hours, and we're talking about his new two-volume work, Justification. So you interact with him here, but in previous works, you spend most of an entire volume working on the relationship between the traditional doctrine of justification and Wright and other writers in the so-called new perspective on Paul. Yeah, and Tom Wright has been, as I say, very generous with his time and has taken seriously the arguments that I've laid out. At the end of the day, though, here's the thing. I think that Tom Wright, and this isn't just Tom Wright, the new perspective, almost all of the folks, and they themselves say, this is not a monolithic Thing. Yeah, we could almost say new perspectives. Yeah. I mean, Wright himself says there are almost as many new perspectives as there are New Testament interpreters of Paul, and I disagree with most of them. <laughs> <laughs> so part of the problem is, you know, they say, well, we're just exegeting the scriptures. We know the mind of Paul. Well, listen, we're all interpreting Paul. We can all read Paul in Greek. 
you know, we're kind of on the same playing field here. We're all also, very importantly, doing systematic theology. It's not as if New Testament scholars over here aren't doing theology. They just don't acknowledge it. But they often don't acknowledge it. Systematic theologians are also doing, or should be, doing exegesis. Charles Hodge and B.B. Warfield were New Testament scholars. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We have to draw this not out of history. It's not because we favor the 16th century. We're not privileging the 16th century over other, right? If they got it wrong, they got it wrong. Sure. Let's go back to the scriptures. And I came away from this, Scott, this project, more convinced than ever. It's not like I was wavering, but more solidly convinced than ever, especially after the second volume, that this is unquestionably the teaching of the apostles. Now, we can quibble over this, that, or the other thing. Well, how do you interpret that verse? Is that Greek term really signifying what we think? It, But in the broad arguments, the Reformers were first-rate biblical exegetes, and they got it right. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't you get the sense that sometimes some of the contemporary writers, whether it's Bart, roughly contemporary, or the writers of the New Perspectives schools, don't really grapple thoroughly with what the Protestants were actually doing with Scripture? Is that That's fair? That's a big, big, big part of it. And that's something that I've had conversations with Tom Wright about. You know, he says, when I really press him, he says— Yeah, look, I've read bits and bobs of Calvin, but I have to admit I haven't read the 16th and 17th century Reformed writers, and I haven't read a lot of the Reformation. So, yeah, I could be wrong about some of the points that you're challenging me on. And I said, but Tom, here's the thing. Your thesis and the broad new perspective thesis in general is the Reformers got it wrong. How can you say that if you haven't seriously engaged them on their own terms, in their own context, at some length? Yeah, and Sanders and Dunn say exactly the same thing, that they haven't read the Reformers very carefully. And it's even worse in Wright's case because he leans on the Torrance thesis. That yeah, which you, is you know, a really horrible thesis. Frankly. Yeah, that you have contributed to the refutation of. Basically, for people who don't know about that, no reason you should know about that necessarily, Calvin versus the Calvinists, that basically Calvin got it right, but everybody after him messed it up. And Tom Wright is leaning on what he's heard from friends, you know, among the Torrances for that. And then you have Douglas Campbell, New Testament Paul scholar at uh, Duke, who has written a giant tome that makes the same argument. I mean, he goes even further, that Reformed federal covenant theology is sort of like global warming. It's going to take over and destroy the planet. (laughs) And uh, it's the source of evil in the world. And his only footnotes are to the Torrances. Yeah. And so the listener should know that the Torrance thesis has been seriously criticized and that specialists who study 16th and 17th century Reformed theology, by and large, don't take that thesis very seriously because it's just not well grounded in original sources. And there's a whole body of literature on that. And if you're interested, you can contact us. And we'll, Scott we'll, Clark will we'll, give you all of the <laughs> bibliographical notes. Yeah, we notes. can talk to you about that at some length, but not in this interview. So you have produced two volumes really engaging all of these issues at some length and in some depth. So in some ways, it might be fair to say that you have done what Tom Wright and E.B. Sanders and others should have done, but didn't do. And so here it is uh, (laughs) uh, for them to read. Yeah, I don't want to uh, give myself that much credit. 
what I do at least try to do here in this second volume is really engage them on their own terms and try to understand what they're saying and sympathetically analyze their arguments. And then at the end of the day, not just revert back to, you know, comparing them to the reformers, but ask questions about their presuppositions, about their assumptions, and more importantly, about their exegesis of the relevant passages. And especially with E.P. Sanders, who kind of got that whole new perspective ball rolling, it's really amazing when he says that, uh, you know, there are no parallels between the Judaism of Paul's day and the medieval church, and then turns around and gives quotations from the Mishnah and other sources, Second Temple sources, on the merit of the fathers being credited to us, so the merit of the saints, on purgatory being taught in Second Temple Judaism. The idea of conditional election, Israel was chosen because God knew that they would choose him. So the rabbis were remonstrants. Yeah, they were, I mean, for, I mean, for Pete's sake, yeah, for goodness sake, if you actually read Sanders' book, he refutes his own thesis. So I think that there are lots of problems with the new perspective. What's interesting is a lot of the new perspective Dons believe that there's something wrong with it. James Dunn, we, in a published book uh, debate, have gone over some of these things, and he admits that the new perspective has overcorrected. One of the things, and we probably should bring this to a close, but one of the themes that you engage is the debate between whether justification is by participation or whether it's legal and forensic. And you say what? It's legal. Justification is legal and forensic. What does that mean, legal and forensic, quickly? That he declares us righteous in the courtroom, not because of anything done by us or in us, in the language of the Westminster Confession, but solely because of the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Now, it is certainly true that we share all of Christ's gifts by participation. Through union with Christ, we have election, redemption, regeneration, so forth. But that doesn't mean that there isn't what we call an ordo salutis, an order of salvation. We don't have to set the idea that there's a logical order, that we're sanctified because we're justified, for example. We don't have to set that against the idea of participation, as if it's either or. Right. It's not either or. We have all of the gifts in union with Christ, and yet, as Paul says, most notably in Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he called, those whom he called, he justified, those whom he justified, he glorified. I think Paul is giving a logical order there, and he does it elsewhere. When we say logical, we're not saying we've invented this idea of an order, and we're going to find it in Scripture or impose it on Scripture. We're simply recognizing what we see Paul saying. Yeah, he says that we're chosen in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. We're chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. There, not only logically, but temporally. Well, it's not temporally because it's in eternity. We were chosen, and then in the fullness of time, redeemed. And then, when we came actually into existence, effectually called, justified, our being sanctified, one day we'll be glorified. So it's a false choice to say that we are justified by union with Christ or we're justified by legal imputation. We are justified by legal imputation, and our sanctification and our glorification depend on that justification, and yet all of it including election, is in Christ. Who can fail to see in Scripture that we are redeemed because we are chosen? Our redemption rests on election. Who can deny that he effectually calls those whom he's redeemed? Effectual calling logically depends on redemption. 
And who can deny that sanctification depends on justification when we are justified and then once that is settled, the court case is settled, we are adopted into the family and become like our elder brother. Final thing, two stages or one stage of justification? One. (laughs) Okay, but there are lots of uh, prominent evangelicals saying that we're initially justified by grace alone through faith alone. And so people quote that and say, look, he says justification by grace alone through faith alone. But then at the judgment, you are saved or finally justified through works. As Tom Wright puts it, on the basis of a whole life lived. Well, then I give up on yeah, how justified any kind are of you? present justification. Exactly. I mean, we've said you're justified, but you're not really justified. You're on probation. We're basically back to medieval Rome. This is the medieval Roman position. There's no question about it. That is the medieval Roman position. You can be sure that you're in a state of grace right now, but that final justification might deliver a different verdict. Well, once you've done that, see, the glorious good news of the gospel is there is therefore now right now, no condemnation, that that verdict of the last day has been rendered in the present. That's what justification is. It is the verdict of the last day announced to you, believer, right now. No condemnation. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.